Judeology Podcast, the podcast that sparks your Judaism through science, technology, and the arts. We'll explore what happens when a modern world blends with an ancient tradition and what that means for the Jewish people. I'm hoping this podcast is entertaining, informative, and sometimes surprises you. Most of all, have fun and spark your Judaism. Today, we have special guest Rabbi Jason Weiner. He's a senior rabbi and director of spiritual care department at Cedar sinai in Los Angeles, rabbi of Knesset Yisrael Synagogue of Beverly Wood. He previously served as assistant rabbi at Young Israel Central City in West Los Angeles. He has a master's degree in both bioethics and health policy from Loyola University, a master's degree in Jewish history from Yeshiva University, and he's also, if I'm not mistaken, is completing a doctorate in clinical bioethics. If you haven't guessed it, today we're going to be talking about medical technology and how it affects our Judaism. How are you doing, Rabbi? Good. Great to see you. It's great to be here. I'm curious. So it says in, in, in my quick research, it says you're doing a doctorate degree in clinical bioethics. What's your thesis on? Well, I'm up to my thesis now. It looks like we're going to be doing some work on conscientious subjection and uh, when medical professionals should feel comfortable not engaging in certain technologies that they're not comfortable with, but when they should consider also being more involved, then uh, they might feel comfortable. Are you putting any special religious Jewish spin on it? Yeah. Um, you know, there's a, the most common question that I'm asked as rabbi in the hospital. There's a lot of questions that come up, but I would say probably the most common question that I'm asked by staff is what they should do about medical issues that arise that they don't want to be involved with, but they feel some kind of you know professional pressure or um, communal pressure that they should be involved, but they don't feel comfortable because they think it might go against their Jewish values or tradition. And people really struggle with that. They want to help people, they want to be involved, but they also feel um, sometimes conflicted, morally conflicted. It's very interesting because actually in, in today's time, one of the things that we're seeing nowadays is a conscientious uh, objection towards vaccinations of all things. We have yes. a lot of, they call them anti-vax moms and anti-vax dads. Right. And um, I think that it's interesting. If I'm not mistaken, there's actually a directive in Judaism to do what you can to live longer, typically. Right. right. So does that mean that as Jews, we're forced to take vaccinations? Yeah, so when, when I speak about conscientious objection in the hospital, I'm thinking about things like, you know, let's say, for example, a common issue we face right now is that physician-assisted suicide, or medical aid in dying, as it's called, is legal here in California. So there are many staff whose patients ask them to help them with that, and they don't feel comfortable helping. So what happens if they don't help them is that another staff member at the hospital, another you know doctor or someone else will talk to them. So they just excuse themselves from the conversation and someone else is involved with it. This is similar for terminal extubation, withdrawing life support, or sometimes abortion issues that arise. A medical professional doesn't feel comfortable being involved, objects by just stepping out, stepping back, and allowing someone else to do it. When it comes to vaccination, it's a little different because if someone's not vaccinated, that does impact other people. So it's one thing if I, as a medical professional, am not willing to engage in a certain technology because then someone else will do it. It doesn't hurt anybody by me not doing it. It just lets someone else do it. If I don't vaccinate myself, though, it does put other people in danger. So um, this is 
this is something that the rabbis virtually unanimously feel is an obligation to be vaccinated because of that. You know, um, some rabbis have analogized it to uh, smoking. It's like secondhand smoke. Someone is allowed to ask someone not to smoke in their presence because uh, of the smoke. So, so too, we can compel people that if they want to be in public, they have to be vaccinated. Right. So it, uh, it goes to this uh, concept of, of herd immunity, right? right? And it seems like Jewish values would go towards this, this herd immunity perspective. perspective right? Yeah, definitely. There's, um, there's a few Talmudic stories. Like there's a story about um, a person who has in his yard very minor um, objects like, piece, like cloves of garlic. So sometimes you might be able to assume that, oh, what's the big deal if one person takes a clove of garlic? But then the rabbis say, well, if everyone takes that clove of garlic, you'll have nothing left. Or another example is um, there's an obligation for people who live in a city to give of their time to guard the city so that everyone has to be involved. And one person can't say, well, look, 99% of the people are guarding the walls, so therefore I don't have to do it. The Talmud says, no, everyone's obligated because if one person doesn't do it, then another person will say, I don't have to do it. And uh, eventually you'll have nobody guarding the walls. And so the rabbis say that we can protect the herd immunity by requiring everyone to do it because that's uh, part of Jewish values. So, so it sounds like engagement is really a, one of the core values that drives a lot of these uh, Talmudic decisions then. So uh, you mentioned uh, conscientious objection. It's, yeah. it's what you're doing your thesis on. Um, it sounds like if there was a, a Jewish doctor and an individual wanted to, I believe you, you mentioned assisted suicide, right? Yeah. Uh, medical assisted suicide. Um, if, a doc, if a Jewish doctor, uh, obviously I would assume would object to it, if I'm not mistaken. But my understanding is, is that somebody who's Jewish is also not allowed to stand idly by and watch and allow somebody else to die in, in vain. Is there some sort of conflict there then? Yeah. So, there, of course, there's definitely a conflict. The challenge is, you know, we're living in a modern society, in a modern world, where it's not so easy to protest the autonomous decisions of an informed and competent adult. So, while it might be true that someone is required to prevent another person from hurting themselves, we also know we have a, a principle in the Talmud, Kashem Shem Mitzvah Lomar Davar Hanishma, just like you're supposed to say something that's going to be heard. Kach Mitzvah Shalom Lomar Davar Shalom Nishma. You also don't say something that no one will hear. And when we're talking about a modern medical environment where a staff member of that hospital is being confronted with a patient doing something that they, they don't agree with, the way they voice their objection is by saying, I can't help you with this. But not to actually force the person not to or somehow compel them not to um, unless the patient wants to have a conversation then of course someone can share their perspective in that conversation but we can't force people you know not to do things just because we don't agree with them um i want to kind of change change the uh, the dynamic a little bit um i think in your book uh, practical decision making guide and also observance of jewish law in in the hospital you you discuss sometimes uh, about vegetative states and how to deal with those kind of situations and i think one of the topics you bring up is absolute value of, of human life versus a relative value of human yeah. life uh, it seems like a very interesting concept, and I was hoping that you could expand on that a little for sure. our listeners. Yeah, it's a very important concept. Basically, the issue is that 
if you read a lot of books about Jewish medical ethics or you talk to people about Jewish medical ethics, you often hear people use the phrase infinite value of life, that Judaism believes that life is of infinite value and therefore everything must be done to any cost or any aggressiveness. Every intervention must be attempted to prolong life because it's of infinite value. And if it's infinite value, there's nothing that can come close to the value of life. And they sort of get that perspective from general Jewish values and a Talmudic statement that um, if someone, if a building collapses on the Sabbath, um, we violate Shabbos to save their life, even if they're likely not alive, or even if they'll only survive for a short while, we still violate the Sabbath to save their life. And the Torah says, you should live by them. So there's this perspective that life is of infinite value. However, when you examine Jewish sources and traditional Jewish text to understand the full picture of Jewish values, it is true that we come from a vitalist perspective. It's, it's called the medical ethics, you know, kind of uh, a life affirming perspective where we do want to prolong life and we want people to live and we want to do things to help prolong life, but not at all costs. It's hard to say that it's infinite value. The way we know that is from a very important story in the Talmud of one of the greatest rabbis ever, Rabbi Yehuda Hanasi, who was the compiler of the Mishnah, one of the, and he was a leader, he was a Nasi, he was the leader of the Jewish people. And um, when he was dying, there was a woman who lived in his home. She was his assistant, the Amsa Debe Rebbe. She was a very wise woman. She's quoted in the Talmud a number of times, and she was there inside his house. And when he was dying, all his students gathered around his house praying for him to recover. And she prayed for him to recover as well. You know, everyone wanted him to recover. Um, but then she was there with him, and she noticed he had to keep on getting up and take off his tefillin and go to the restroom, and it was pain and agony. And she realized, you know what? Prolonging his life is not in his best interest. It was like uh, Yonah, the prophet Jonah, who said, Tov moti michayai, so I'd rather be dead than alive. And Tosfot, uh, one of the you know medieval Jewish rabbinic authorities, says, you know, sometimes we can say halachically that uh, according to Jewish law, sometimes death is better than life and someone's suffering so much. Just, so just she, to clarify real quick, we're yeah. not talking about people who, God forbid, have any suicidal thoughts, right? No, th th this is different than suicide. Um, obviously, this discussion comes up regarding suicide, but that's a different issue. We're not allowed to take our life. But a person can say, I would rather not be alive and I hope God take you know, I hope. Uh, I hope I am freed from my suffering. Um, we can never do anything active to shorten life or to, to hasten death. But she realized, the, this assistant of Rebbe, that his suffering was so horrible that his life was not good. So yes, she would not do anything to hurt him or make him die faster. But she realized these prayers are keeping him alive. And we should stop saying these prayers to allow natural death. Not to cause death, but to allow natural death. But then she realized that the students were still outside praying and their prayers were keeping him alive. So she went to the rooftop and took a big jug and they didn't see her up there. And she threw the jug down to the ground and smashed it. And it made a huge explosion sound and startled the students. And in that moment, they stopped praying because they were so afraid of what had just happened. And she was right. It was their prayers that had kept him alive. And in that moment, when they ceased their prayers, um, he died. And the rabbis throughout Jewish history, the Ran, one of the Rishonim, Rabbi Moshe Feinstein, quoted this story 
as a way of saying, you know what, this is the proper approach that if someone is really suffering and really in pain, as you said, we do not hasten death, we do not withdraw life support, but we can withhold, we can allow death to take place and focus on uh, palliative comfort measures to ensure that the person's not suffering. And therefore we see that life is of relative value, relative to pain and suffering, meaning we do everything we can to prolong life, but we don't prolong suffering, we don't prolong the dying process if there's no cure possible. And so therefore it becomes difficult to say that life is of infinite value, it's of tremendous value but it's not the ultimate value. And we know this because Judaism allows war, for example, which causes people to die. There are three transgressions that we have to rather die than do. So we know that life itself is not the ultimate value. The ultimate value is living up to our values. The Torah says um, you should guard your soul. Pen tishkach at the that You should guard your soul lest you forget the Torah. And some of the rabbis understood that as a way of saying you should keep yourself alive so that you can study Torah, so that you can have a meaningful life. But if you can't live a meaningful life, then quality of life discussions come into play. And agreeing with you, we do not hasten death, but we can allow natural. So that kind of brings up this gray area then, I would think. It brings up this area of if life has relative value or non-infinite value, could therefore then two lives be compared to each other, say, in a triage situation? Do you prioritize one life in front of another? Is there some sort of odd thing that's going on there? Yeah, very good question. So we, we have another principle in the Talmud, which is Ein dochi nefesh nefesh. We never push off one life for the other life. We also have another principle, Mi who says whose blood is redder? Everyone is of equal value. Um, so there are principles of triage in Jewish law, but we never value one life more than the other. I'll tell you a story. Once we had a patient who was um, brain dead, and um, they were determined, they were declared brain dead, which is dead by California law, by, America, by United States law, but many Orthodox rabbis don't accept brain death. Some do, many don't. This particular patient and his family did not accept brain death. So we at Cedar sinai it's a law in California, but we have a very aggressive policy where we allow for reasonable accommodation. If someone's religious values do not match the state law, we try to accommodate, at least within reason. So we were keeping him in the ICU, even though it costs almost $40,000 a day in our neuro ICU. Uh, and obviously the family didn't have to pay that. The hospital ate the cost and they allowed him to stay in the hospital. I, I just want to interrupt you. $40,000 a day? Yeah, that's what they bill insurance. I Talk about, you know, relative value, right? <laughs> yeah. uh, so I, I guess when you're talking about, you know, non-infinite value, there's a lot of at least fiscal value, right? Yeah. Uh, there's other concepts in the Torah that talk about if something's a huge fiscal uh, hindrance, right? We're, we're right. allowed to do certain certain things around that. Yes. Um was the family explained it's $40,000? This is a huge impact on the business of the hospital? Well, you know, they didn't give that pressure to the family. No, they, um, I think that would be unfair to, to the family. They basically said, you know, the hospital eats a lot of bills that people can't pay when they're in extreme situations and when insurance is not willing to cover them. And that's just part of the mission of a non-for-profit hospital. Um, of course, it, it is an important discussion justice and how much we're spending on some and not on others and but in this case uh, in many cases people come in we have a lot of homeless patients for example in the hospital and uh, you know, obviously they don't get a bill 
the hospital just assumes that there's going to be a certain amount of people every year that get interventions for which they cannot get reimbursed. But it's a big, it's a big issue. So, so this patient um, is in the ICU receiving care to keep him alive, even though he's been declared brain dead. Then a, young, a teenager is in a motorcycle accident and has severe brain trauma. He was in the emergency room and the, they stabilized him, but he needed intensive care to go to the ICU, to the neuro ICU. So as they're getting ready to transfer him upstairs to the neuro ICU, the nurse manager from that floor calls back and says, wait, our floor is full. We can't take him. They say, but are you sure we need, he needs an ICU room? She says, we're totally full. Oh, wait, but we do have that one patient who by California law is a corpse. And he's now taking up a bed that a young teenager whose life can be saved needs. So she calls me and says, Rabbi, you know, we're keeping this patient alive because you said Jewish law demands it, but does it also demand that we not save a teenager's life so that this elderly brain dead patient can be kept alive? So I call, I, I was, obviously it was a hard question. It's not something that um, I wanted to take responsibility for. So I called a very important rabbi and he said, you know, the principle in Jewish law is ein dochin nefesh nefesh. We do not give one life for another life. We never make a value statement of whose life is worth more. That really depends on your definition of life, though, right? The state of California <laughs> would disagree and say life, the guy's dead. Right? It, be, it's, it was a huge challenge. And when I tried to explain that to the hospital, they said exactly what you said. And they said, I'm sorry, but we don't see it that way. But I, I had a lot of pride in the fact that we value all life equally. I mean, every human being, it doesn't matter their mental status, their worth to society. All human life has equal dignity and value. What we did end up doing because the hospital said, you know what? We're going to have to put a limit on this because we need to save this young man's life. We're not going to let him die or not get... Um, equal treatment just because of a corpse so we're going to have to figure something out very quickly so what i did was i basically said okay let me go search for another bed and if we can find one we'll have we'll be okay so they let, they let me go search luckily i went around searching they gave me a list of which floors could take this patient i didn't find one but then in the two hours it took me to look another bed opened up in the neuro icu and the motorcycle accident victim was able to take wow. that bed but it, it illustrates the point of all life being of equal value, which can be frustrating if you say, yeah, we're not going to save a life of a young. But it, it look, looked at it in another perspective. It's also very profound to say that every human being has equal value and equal dignity. What is the Jewish definition of life then? Right. It's a it's a bigger question of going back to your example. Right. The state of California would say that the, the person's uh, dead. At what point do you do you stop giving uh, CPR and say this guy is no longer is it heartbeat stopping is it brain waves is there something that you can't see a neshama or at least i can't i can't see a neshama right. exit a soul basically our principle of what life means both at the beginning and at the end of life is kolosher nishmat ruach right anyone that has the breath in their nose god's breath has breathed life into them so if they're breathing they're alive so we say that about a baby once it emerges from the womb it's alive and a person as long as they can breathe they're alive of course with modern medical technology recognizing is it because their heart is pumping and therefore their their lungs are oxygenating their blood or is it because their brain is telling their lungs to breathe what is it that is causing the breathing or is it because a machine is breathing for them it becomes very complicated it does sound complicated uh these are decisions that you probably have to make at least you know, weekly basis, if not daily. 
I want to change the subject again on you. Many in the Jewish community, unfortunately, have to deal with inability to have children. Yeah. My understanding of IVF was uh, many years ago when it was first invented, it was actually treated as a very dangerous procedure and that, in general, Jews should not take part of it. And my current understanding is is that it's if you need to, not only is it encouraged, but in some cases, some rabbis would even go as far as to say it's mandatory. Can you take us through kind of that transition from being reluctant and saying that it's us or to do because it's too dangerous to the current, absolutely you can do it, and sometimes you absolutely should, based on the, the law of be fruitful and multiply. Right. Yeah, the first, um, well, I guess what they called the test two baby, the first IVF child, I think her name was Nancy Brown. She was born in 1978. She's healthy today. She's 40 years old. And um, it was controversial at the time, and then she did great, and now it's become very common, especially in Israel. And you're right, the rabbis at first were very concerned. Their concern was, you know, this is new, this is scary, it's changing the entire way, manner of procreation, it could undermine the family structure, there could be all kinds of problems because in Judaism we're very concerned about lineage and ensuring that someone is indeed the child of the people who had them and we're afraid that people might accidentally marry a sibling or their status of being a Jew or who their parents are in terms of you know inheritance or who they have to honor, things like that. Like It's very important to know who this person is and the rabbis were afraid what's going to happen if you can start making babies in a lab uh, what would that lead to which you know today with all the kinds of technology things that are happening they're still concerned obviously you're always a little bit nervous about what's next and so the rabbis want to kind of slow that process down especially when this is an area of such sensitivity and sanctity and family you know structure that was very nerve-wracking for them so actually an interesting example of this is Rev Sternbach there's a great rabbi in Jerusalem today from kind of the most ultra-orthodox sect called the Eidach Haredes. He wrote a response called Chuvos Van Hagos. And in his book, Chuvos Van Hagos, he has written seven volumes of response now. In the first volume, he writes that it's completely forbidden to engage in IVF. He wrote that in the 1980s. Absolutely forbidden by Jewish law, and um, should, one should not even consider it. In the second volume, he writes that um, this is prohibited. He doesn't use a strong of language, but it still says it's prohibited. In the third volume, a couple years later, he says, I would say it's not, it's not prohibited, but it's not allowed. And I would kind of avoid it. In the fourth volume, he writes, you know, some do it, some rabbis allow it. In the fifth volume, he writes, many rabbis allow it, and it might be allowed. In the sixth volume, he says, it's encouraged and probably even obligatory. So it's like, this is the same person in a matter of 25 years that... How did he change so much? So I actually had the opportunity to ask him. I met him in his apartment in Harnof in Jerusalem, and I pointed this out to him, and he sort of smiled, and he said, he said, look, when it was new, we were not sure about it yet. We were nervous about it. We weren't sure how the health of the children would be. We weren't sure if there would be accidents in the lab, if there would be people who would be switched, and there would be mistakes in who the children were. Now they've set up a process in the Orthodox community of supervision, in the fertility labs. They've had an opportunity to see that the children are healthy and it's a safe procedure. And they've realized that there's a lot of people who are suffering because they want to have children, but they're unable to, and medical technology can help them. And it's a natural human desire, and it's a mitzvah in Judaism to procreate. 
and uh, you know our foremothers in the Torah struggled with infertility and they cried and they were, some of them said they'd even rather be dead than not have children and then they were blessed with children and it totally changed their lives and it was such a blessing to them and we've prayed and cried about this for thousands of years and to be able to live in a generation where we have this technology uh, it's a wonderful opportunity and now the vast majority of rabbis permit it and encourage it and see it as a wonderful blessing yeah it's quite interesting to see that over time in practice we'll we'll say we're very much against something and until it gets integrated into the larger society, we find ourselves, you know, this is not for us. And once it gets more commonplace, and it seems safer as well as it factors, we start to accept it a little bit more and more into right. our everyday lives. I think that there was a similar um, suggestion about timers on Shabbos, if I'm not mistaken. There was, if you had a timer on Shabbos, somebody might think that you're turning on and off your lights on Shabbos. Right. And yes. it was usher to have right. a, a Shabbos timer on Shabbos. Uh, for Shabbos, I should say. And But as time came on, timers became more, more and more commonplace. It became okay. And everyone just uses timers on Shabbos. Like it's... No big deal. <laughs> so there's a few issues. I mean, one is the pervasiveness of technology in our lives today. So at a time when it wasn't quite as pervasive, the rabbis could say, like, let's not do this. But as it became very difficult to live in a society without, you know, timers or objects that could ensure that we wouldn't have to do it ourselves, you know, things change. But it's also an ethical issue because technology is changing so rapidly and sometimes we have to ask ourselves just because we can do something should we do it and sometimes there's a value in saying like let's just be careful and like think this through and test this a little bit and and work it out before we just jump in it's a great segue into our last topic for tonight uh we talked about ivf but Part of that IVF process, people are now discovering that we can use the, the sperm and the egg and modify their genetic signature now in order to make what's called designer babies or, right. or genetically altered humans, right. right? That brings a huge ethical question into Jews. not just Jews, but the world at large. Bereshit's uh, Genesis says, um, we were made in Hashem's image, God's image. Are we allowed to change that image to what we want to see? It's, is God image the blueprint, the genetic code of the human being? I mean, you're right. It's a huge issue. Because on the one hand, you know, we don't believe in natural law in Judaism. We don't say like, you know, however the world is created, we just have to leave it that way. And we can't, we can't interfere with God's creation. I mean, we do believe that part of our mandate in the world is to make the world a better place. And surgeries are allowed. And we are believe in interventions to try to help to improve human life and um, so we don't just we're not passive or even against medical and technological advances but you're right that we're very nervous about um, going too far with playing god and influencing human life as we know it you know some of the ethical scenarios and dilemmas that could arise are so profound and so difficult and many of which we can't even imagine yet and we could really wreak havoc on the world if we rush into this too quickly. So what the rabbis are saying right now is not that we can't be involved with this in any way, but you know it comes up already, it's already an issue when it comes to PGD, for example, pre-implantation genetic diagnosis. In the IVF process, it's possible to test 
samples of pre-embryos and determined which ones are carriers for certain genetic illnesses, for example, and only re-implant those embryos and not the ones that have any kind of a issue. Also, also it's a topic for if uh, somebody's in their, I believe, even first term, um, you can uh, test the embryo to see if it has a number of genetic disorders, right? right? Downs, for example. Right. And but please go ahead. Right. So in those situations, people are deciding if they want to abort or not, basically. With PGD, people have you know a whole number of pre-embryos in a petri dish and they're deciding which one they want to use. And so the rabbis have come up with kind of principles based on Talmudic rules that says that basically you can engage in this to a certain extent. Like let's say someone is a carrier for a certain genetic mutation in their family. So you can engage in PGD to ensure that the children will not have that. While they're at it though, the doctor will say, okay, well, we have found, you know, you have three that are healthy and, you know, one's a boy, one's a girl, one has blue eyes, one has brown eyes, one has blonde hair, you know, and you can start choosing. And so the rabbis have given us guidance, which is basically that we can make decisions like this and involve ourselves with influencing uh, pre-embryos and the next generation if it's for a medical intervention, if there's some kind of medical necessity, some kind of a therapeutic reason. But if it's to sort of play God, as we were saying before, to just, yeah, I'm just going to have a kid that's really fast so that I can, you know, make it to the Olympics and, or, you know, very smart so that he can create an invention or she can do some kind of uh, spectacular intellectual exercises. So just for influencing human genes, that's not enough of a reason. So the rabbis would avoid that because of the concerns about ethical implications, but allowed if it's for a medical intervention. Thank you. And with that, we're going to wrap it up here. Rabbi Jason Weiner is the author of Jewish Guide to Practical Medical Decision-Making. Due to the rapid advances in the medical field, existing books on Jewish medical ethics are quickly becoming outdated. The Jewish Guide to Practical Medical Decision-Making seeks to remedy that by presenting the most contemporary medical information and rabbinic rulings in an accessible, user-friendly manner. Rabbi Weiner addresses a broad range of medical circumstances, such as surrogacy and egg donation, assisted suicide, and end-of-life decision-making. Based on his extensive training and practical familiarity inside a major hospital, Rabbi Weiner provides a clear and concise guidance to facilitate complex decision-making for the most common medical dilemmas that arise in contemporary society. Thank you, Rabbi, for your time. Thank you, Yaakov. It's a pleasure. Shalom, and thank you for listening to the Judeology Podcast. If you've liked what you heard, please consider supporting the podcast at yakovshefrist.com slash judeology. I always welcome feedback, and you can reach me through my website at yakovshefrist.com slash contacts. Links in the description.